We have a new show at Turpentine that's been in the works for a long time, Company Breakdowns. We dive into S1s and Series B and beyond companies, interviewing founders and investors to break down the companies. First episode is on Rubrik, which IPO'd this week. Upcoming episodes cover Reddit, Databricks, and more. Subscribe at the link in the description or search for Company Breakdowns on YouTube or in the podcast platform of your choice. Is this thing on? Yesterday's price is not today's price. All right. Hey, everybody. It's CJ. We're on the Numbers Podcast. This intro is going to be a bit brief. I have to go to my very first parent information night. I feel woefully underqualified to be going to this. Teacher is going to be like, sir, you look like you're 12. What, what are you doing here? Are you lost? I can't grow a beard and uh, I don't feel like a parent, but I guess I legally am. So I'm going to go to that, learn whatever they learn at daycare. And what we're going to talk about today on the pod is in the art of saying no and how BI and analytics teams develop specifically within finance. Before we get to that, you may notice that I try to sneak in some recurring questions from time to time on the podcast. And one of those is how do CFOs say no gracefully? And I think saying no gracefully is a soft skill that's very underrated, and it's really a superpower if you can do it correctly. I still believe I suck at saying no. I'm going to get into it with Sanoi here, CFO of Envoy, absolute rock star. And he had this framework. He called it the butter and the knife approach. So he said, you want to butter people up before you poke them. I'll say it one more time. You want to butter people up before you poke them. When you meet somebody and it's like a new peer or somebody you're going to be working a lot with, you want to find ways to quickly break down obstacles that they have in their way to show them that you're on their side and you have the ability to make their lives easier. You want to do this at the very start and build up almost credits. They're like karma credits over time to show that, hey, I'm not always going to say no. I'm a pretty reasonable person if you come to me and I can actually help you accomplish goals. And sometimes this is making a decision that, the CFO has the power to quickly make kind of like an executive order. And I'll admit it's a, it's a very unfair advantage. You have the CFO and other times, another unfair advantage is you can quite literally throw money at a problem to make it go away. And it's amazing how much bandwidth of expensive employees or resources each day might be blocked or hindered by say like a 5,000 or $10,000 problem. So you should feel empowered to cut the check within reason if it can unblock people who otherwise are just spinning their wheels. And something that he noticed, he's like, hey, this isn't a political thing. Like I want to be, you know, voted into a CFO office or whatever, but you actually want to see them succeed in whatever it is that they're doing, whether that's selling the product or building the product. So next time you have a new person, think about this, the butter them up uh, before you poke them, the butter and, and the knife analogy. So on to the pod. Welcome back to another episode of the Run the Numbers podcast. I'm CJ Gustafson here with Sinoe Torero, the CFO of Envoy. Sinoe, thanks so much for joining me today. Well, thanks for having me, CJ. We were just joking before the pod that he grew up in the Bronx, but is a big Red Sox fan, a first for the pod. A first for me, actually, meeting anyone. I have a David Ortiz bat behind me, and he's actually been to a, a couple of big games to root for the Sox, so I'm pretty pumped to have you here. Yeah, I think that's actually what's given me fortitude in life as being a Red Sox fan in the Bronx. It made you stronger. You're better for it. And so what I wanted to start out with today is what you kind of categorize 
a CFO as. And so we we had Michael Tannenbaum, the CFO of Brex, come on, and he had he had said, "Hey, I think the CFO in a lot of ways is the chief risk officer of the company." We had Charlie Kevers from Carta, and he said, I look at the CFO as the truth teller. And I was doing a little digging on you, and you had labeled the CFO as the enabler of the organization. How do you think about that? Yeah, well, for me, I think that there are some things that are required for the job. Like, you have to be good at numbers. I think that all of the things that were said are true. Like, you have to be a truth teller. And you know you have to be the, the chief risk officer, but I think as the as the profession has evolved and the role has evolved, I think that that sort of like comes with the package. Yeah. Right. I think what what really now defines a CFO is enabling teams to get their work done and helping the company move forward faster. Right. I think that um, early on, someone told me in my career when I was you know developing and trying to think about my next step, like what was the difference between a controller and a CFO. And it was like, a controller says no, a CFO should say yes. <laughs> and so for me, I, I, I've taken that to heart because that's what really gives me, I think, a, I don't know about leverage, but it allows me to get partners to do things, if you will. And it's really about enabling. In many cases, you're the adult kind of, because for some reason, CFOs tend to be, you know, older, they tend to have a little bit more experience, uh, seen a few more things. And so you've seen the movie play out. And part of it is now you have to help the CEO direct the movie. And in that, you need to help folks get their jobs done. And that goes anyone from, from the marketing team to the product team to launching a new product, you know, et cetera. You know, my, my job is really like, how do I combine the forces of the other teams to make sure that we're moving faster. At least that's what I think makes me good at my job. I, I love that soundbite, producer Nancy. You're going to have to grab that one, that the, C, the CFO is helping the CEO direct the movie. I've never thought about it that way. And it makes me think about something that somebody said to me once in my career, because you know I, I came in like within the G&A function. I was doing sales ops stuff. I was doing strategy and ops stuff, doing finance stuff. And he said to me, look, there are three groups of people at the company. There are people that sell the product, there are people that build the product, and there are people that help the other two groups do it better and faster. He said, you're in that third group. And that's what I kind of liken to an enabler in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah. I think that's spot on. I think, and that, and that is a great way to put it because that is the main third wheel, right? Um, you need to make sure those other two things move and move fast. How have you learned to say yes more in your career? Something that I struggle with as being the adult in the room is having kind of an inclination to want to say no to things, or at least to say, let's slow down and think about it. Are there any tips or tricks that you've had to, to be perceived at least as a person who says yes more in the CFO seat? It's going to sound terrible, but bear with me. I actually tell younger professionals, particularly people that have to say no a lot, my approach is what I call butter and knife. Okay. And <laughs> I want to butter people up before I got to poke them. Because what I found is that you can say no, and if people have trust in you, they take it as a yes. But if people perceive you to be the no person, they will take it as, oh my God, here comes another no from the no guy. And for me, building that trust early is critical because that actually gives me a lot more room to be able to say no, because people know my intention is not to block them. My intention is to make the best decision that I can for the company. And so you have to make that early investment in individuals, but also in the organization so that they see you as someone that is willing to say yes. But at the same time, many times you are in a position to say no. So believe me, I say no a lot more times than I say yes. 
but I make sure that I'm making that investment early on because I don't want to be perceived as a blocker. I think that disempowers you, that doesn't allow you to be an enabler, that doesn't, you know, it puts you in a box of the no person. Ultimately, you want to make sure that people know that you're trying to drive and driving sometimes says, no, we're not going to go off the ramp, right? Yeah. Do you think about it like you're almost building up credits with the people or you're banking trust for like future stuff? Absolutely. Absolutely. You have to. And whenever I take over a new group, for example, one of the things that I do is I, I walk through the, you know, through the jungle of low-hanging fruit to say, what can I actually do to impact their work quickly, right? Like, what are the things that they've been sitting on that I have the power or the ability to do for them so that they can see impact right away. And they're like, wow, this guy's like, whoa, just, just took over this, this thing. And look, this thing that was blocked for me for five months is all of a sudden unblocked. And so I pick and choose a few of those in order to gain trust. Not just, it's not like just like a political scheme. It's really like, I want people to feel empowered and I want them to hit the ground running. And so I will look, I'll sit back and I'll be like, well, what, what can I actually help that's a low-hanging fruit for me that I can do? Because back to the enabler point, I think I work a lot less with numbers than I do with people, Yeah. right? And so for me, I spend my time basically negotiating with humans in order to get them to do what I ultimately want them to do, right? I ultimately want the salesperson to go crush it. I ultimately want the product person to launch the best product faster. And so... I think about it in a selfish way, but I cannot be selfish unless I'm giving, right? So it's a two-way street and people want to feel like you're on their team and, and they'll work a lot harder, they'll work a lot faster, they'll fight you less. Can you think of any examples in your career taking over a group and identifying like a specific wall that you knocked down? I'm just trying to make it more tangible for myself and for people listening. Like, hey, I want to do that. I want to put some numbers on the boards quick. Sometimes there is like, we're going around in circles in some like decision-making Right. Um, so one time I took over a customer success group, the leader was really trying to make a small adjustment to someone's like work environment, for example. And the policy was X, you know, the HR department was fighting back. I kind of went in and I was like, guys, let's make this one exception, if you will, because I think it's going to benefit that team. And it was a very low lift because it wasn't even a huge exception, but it was something that was being blocked for a very long time. A marketing team, they wanted to implement some software. The corporate IT team was given a bit of a pushback. And I was just like, guys, let's, let's let them launch this as an experiment. You, you can push back later, but let's enable them to launch this product. It's gonna help them with their product management. It's under budget. They're doing all of the things. And so it's little things like that, that then the team is like, thank you. I've been trying to get that thing approved by the corporate IT team forever, or the HR team was blocking me for this. And sometimes it's honestly <laughs> allocating some budget. You know, as a CFO, you have that power, if you will, and that's an, that's an unfair advantage you have. But sometimes it's as simple as saying, hey, we've been really trying to get this, you know, approved. And now I'm in a position where I got to make that decision. Now, someone else is going to have to pay, meaning like I'm going to have to make a compromise somewhere else. But I want to make sure that there's something tangible that they see. And a lot of times it's small. But people just like, wow, thank you. Thank you for unblocking right. something that I thought was just you know, impassable. I hate to say it, but sometimes you totally can throw money at a problem and make it go away. Like it could be, is this a, is this a $5,000 problem we're dealing with now that everybody's just going around circles with? Yeah, I think a lot of times. And you want to make sure that, you know, my CEO, for example, is the CEO that I've ever worked with that's mostly about fairness, 
okay. and process, right? Like he wants to make sure that our processes are fair and that, you know, that we don't make exceptions because exceptions leads to unfairness. And one of the things that I work with him on is, look, I want to be fair, but I'm also pragmatic and I'm trying to move a business forward. And sometimes I got to make decisions that might go a little bit outside. So long as that doesn't become a pattern, I need to be able to enable people because again, my main job is to negotiate with humans, to get them engaged, to get them energized, to get them pumped so that they're going at the speed that I am asking them to go. And it's not as simple as me asking for it by decree, right? I could ask whatever I want. If if they're not energized, if they don't believe that they're in a team that wants them to win, it's going to be just a harder conversation. I love that. The CFO as enabler, it, it definitely hits home. I wanted to go back to one thing that you brought up about when you take over a team and you want to get some quick wins on the board. I was really excited to talk to you today because you have extensive experience working with business intelligence, BI, and analytics teams. You did it at Etsy, you did it at Indiegogo, and now you're doing it at Envoy. And so I've come into this role where like traditionally I've done finance and strategy. Now I'm inheriting a BI team. If you were in my shoes, what would be some of the things you'd kind of look out for on day one to make sure it gets off to a successful start? BI teams are are fun, but challenging. When I started building the first BI team that I built at Etsy, there were no data scientists. So right now, I think everyone has a cousin who's a data scientist or knows someone <laughs> that has a cousin who's a data scientist. You know, back then you were lucky if you knew a guy that knew SQL. And so we were using the Microsoft stuff and then we moved to SQL and then we, we eventually put a warehouse in. And so I've seen a lot of evolution just in BI generally, where now I think there's a big requirement for every company to have one. I think the, the biggest call out that I, would, that I would have is that you do have to be protective over their work and you have to make sure that you are setting the tone early because more data does not mean better decisions. Mm. The right data means better decisions, right? And right now we have an abundance of data and, you know, some folks, when they first get a little taste of it, they're like, give me more, give me more. And so I have another saying that I, that I, I tell people, I'm like, you should only peel the onion until it starts to make you cry, but you shouldn't keep peeling, right? Because you can go down a rabbit hole of data, but you need to figure out what is the right level of insights that you want to provide. And then the other thing is that I think a lot of times people get enamored with like the experimentation part of data the things that are more like, I want to call them sexy. And now there's been a few times in which I got to go basically throw a grenade into that team and say, look, that's all good, but I need to make sure that our business metrics are stellar, that the core business stuff, like the accuracy is unquestionable because that is what I'm going to send bankers when I'm doing a fundraise. That is what I'm going to send my investors. That is the things that they're going to drill into. And we got to cover that. So it's like a, a pyramid of needs, if you will, right? And I think a lot of times people want to start at the top, which is like, oh, here's a sexy, you know, data science-y thing. And I'm like, look, that's amazing. I want to get there too. Let's talk about making sure that our marketing is correct, making sure that our Salesforce data, particularly if you're in a SaaS company, like, do you really understand, you know, your, your ARR? Can you literally, can someone come in and really check your numbers and, you know, what do you have there that is accurate? And then you can move up. Then afterwards, then I'm saying, okay, now product, we get to give you some product resources so that you could do A-B testing and you can think about the product development. Companies have a tendency to try to start in the other direction, which is like, let's give the product stuff first. And look, that's awesome. 
but ultimately no one is ever going to audit your product metrics. What they are going to audit is your business metrics. You know, you're going to want to make sure that your marketing is sound for your forecasting. And then you get to the end, you know, for anyone building a team from scratch, like make sure your, your zero to one is really sound. And you'd be surprised. There's a lot of times that when you actually go in and dig, there's some funkiness that you find in your ARR and your retention. And you got to make sure that you feel comfortable that whenever you're sending data out, that it is accurate. I'd never want to send the board or anyone an updated, you know, number right. because we had a mistake. That's the worst. Restating anything is like a death sentence. For sure. Hey, thanks for listening. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. What you said there about chasing the sexy thing resonates because what I've observed is Sometimes BI teams will chase what's most interesting, not what's most impactful for business decisions. Would that sound right to you? A thousand percent. I mean, look, humans gravitate to the thing that they find interesting, right? We all do. Or the things that we feel comfortable with, right? We all gravitate. And, you know, some of the blocking and tackling business stuff is not, it's not, like fun and engaging in some ways for people that want to be doing Poisson distribution analyses, right? Right. But what does the business need? I'll tell you this. One of the ways that I've gotten the teams to be more engaged with it is because it gives them a different level of business acumen. And so mm. that allows them to understand the business in a way more intimate way. If they're often to their corner doing experimentation, many times they don't know what's happening in the business. My teams are, are like core to board preparation. Matter of fact, my data team runs the whole board preparation project. D do they run process. the board deck? Yeah. Wow. Okay, yeah. cool. That's a good, good insight. And it's because the way that I structure my team is, you know, the sales organization has an analyst that's basically yep. helping them with their metrics. The customer success organization has an analyst. The marketing team has an analyst. And sometimes it's a shared analyst or resource. But my point is that there is a data resource that is helping folks because I want to make sure that across the organization, when we say active user, we all know what that means. Right. Right. When we say... Again, retention, we know what that means. Is it trailing 12 months? You know, are we doing annualizing on a quarterly basis? The more that that is siloed, the more risk you run of different parts of the organization saying different things to mean the same metric. And so I'm very protective of that. I'm very protective of making sure that we are, that our definition for metrics are across the entire company the same. And so because of that, we basically have the concentrated knowledge of the board preparation. And the team actually is one of the only teams that gets to see the entire board deck from the beginning to end. We're very close to the overall business performance across all parts of the business. There's so much to dig into here. Okay. So on, <laughs> on the dictionary piece or kind of like defining terms, do you have the BI team create, this is what our definition of ARR is with the formula for it. This is what an active user is. And people can get that within the org. Uh, yeah. Matter of fact, that is in the appendix of all of our board decks. Awesome. We have our definitions. So the last page of all our board decks is our definitions and where we get our benchmarks from. Because, you know, it. we're doing some benchmarking. So it's like, here are the definitions we use. Here's where we got this benchmark. 
or if we introduce a new metric, it's always asterisks and it's always displayed at the bottom of the slide yeah. to be like, this is how this is calculated. I, I was uh, writing a piece for the newsletter that I do, mostly metrics, and it's how the 25 top tech companies define net dollar retention, an excerpt from their 10K of how they described it and why it was powerful for the business and the formula. What, what I wanted to ask you is what are some of the common metrics that you think are most crucial to define succinctly at the start? Well, I think definitely we want to make sure that people understand what active user means. Yeah. Uh, because again, in a product organization, you live and die by activity, but activity is in the eye of the beholder because it could be like that they opened the app. And is that meaningful? I don't know. I think different companies are going to pick and choose and different product teams are going to choose. So I think it's, it's important for us to have a shared understanding of that. Believe it or not, I think it's important for us to understand what we mean by retention or how we calculate retention, because I think trailing 12 months retention sometimes is something that people got, have to get their head around. They don't yeah. understand what, what that means. And, and so we, we had to educate the company on it. When I got here, we didn't do trailing 12 months. And then we went to fundraise and all the investors were like, well, what's your trailing 12 month? And I was like, yes, I know. And so now it's easy for me to go back to the team and be like, look, investors want this number. And so I think, you know, I, I think it's mostly around, around those things it, because the rest of the stuff, there's stuff that's like tried and true. Like, you know what your ARR is, you know what your net and gross retention are. We track the magic number from an efficiency standpoint. So you know what the magic number, you know, is. So most of the metrics I think are pretty standard, but there are things like lifetime value, lifetime value. I'm not a big fan. Because if you look, everyone does lifetime value in a different way. But there are some investors that are asking for lifetime value. So how you calculate lifetime value, I think, is important. You know, for us, for example, like I put a limit on the amount of years. So it's like, regardless yeah. of what the math tells me, I don't have an infinite customer. <laughs> yeah. um, and, you know, some folks, you know, don't do that, right? And even to your point on retention, I think that there's some people that they get creative into yeah. what they're including in their retention. You know, like a customer below this number is not included in this number. And so you want to make sure that it's clear, look, all of our customers are included in this number. Or if there's a good reason why we should think about it differently, then let's, let's do that. Yeah, I think it was GitLab and I think Domo too. They weren't including customers below $10,000 or $5,000 in spend. And it's like, well, no wonder yep. why you look so good. You took out all the small ones you can churn easy. And look, sometimes what you do, and, and, and I've done this, um, you present that. And then if there is a sub-segment that is better, you present that separately, right? Like enterprise usually will have a much better retention. And so for me, like I've, I've done that where I've just separated enterprise, but it's clear, like, here's my total number. And by the way, here's a subsect of my business. So you can get a taste of that. But I think it's a little bit disingenuous to, to like, just flat out, take a group of your customers out of a metric. I want to go back to structuring business intelligence teams and enabling the org to make decisions. So do you take a business partnering approach would be the first question. Like you assign a person to each team. And then the second question to that would be, how do you make sure they prioritize the right questions? Because what I've found is sometimes the leaders ask something in a way that it, it could actually be asked or hypothesized in a more nuanced way to get to where they're going. How do you deal with that so they don't just chase what's interesting? Uh, both great questions. I, I call my analysts uh, embedded journalists Ooh. because they're basically like embedded in the field. And 
it's really meant so that the leaders of those of those groups feel like they have a resource, but they report centrally. And the importance of reporting centrally, quite frankly, goes back to the shared, you know, use of language more than anything else. Because I want to make sure that we go back to HQ, HQ, HQ for the data team, <laughs> and 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 we are all one sharing knowledge, two so that we could jump in to fix things, and three making sure that like we're we're looking at again like our SQL models and everything are things that we all understand how we're pulling uh, together, but they are embedded. The intention is that the leader of the group feels like they have an analyst as their analyst. In many ways, in terms of the insights, it's a great question and it is a challenge. And I think you do have to earn trust. But quite frankly, as the leader of the data team, you also have to step in, and that's part of when I got to jump in and just say we're not going to do that kind of thing. Again, back to the onion peeling, people will onion peel, and they will try to. You know, a lot of teams when they're presenting their board slides, they want to just present the good stuff. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I make, I, I'm clear with the teams that I have final editorial on any slides and I do go in and like change like descriptions, words, anything that I think is a little too sugarcoating because I want to make sure that our data slides should be sort of agnostic in, in many ways. They should just say what is on the slide, right? Now, that doesn't mean you don't put a little bit of spin to it, but it can't be like, you know, like squirrel. And so... A lot of it is making sure that I'm pushing the team for insights in what we present. The other thing is making sure that people understand what I call my baseline slides. So we go into every board prep meeting saying, here are the base slides. These are slides that I'm gonna, that I'm gonna have there no matter what. Those slides go first. Any slide that we wanna add in addition to that, in addition to the base slides, like I have to approve. Are they the um, same base slides every quarter so the board knows? Pretty much. It's because a big part of your business shouldn't change, right? Like right. your graphs for retention trend or whatever, or your AR trend, like they shouldn't change. The insight in the graph should change. What you're highlighting should change, but that graph itself in the slide should remain. And there should be a handful of those. Like that, A, the board you know knows what, what they should expect. And B, like that, it lowers the workload. If every time we're just reinventing the wheel, well, that's right. going to be, that's going to take a very long time. Board prep right now takes a long time, even with base slides, because you got to do all that stuff. And so part of it, honestly, is a little bit of a dance, right? The analyst needs to make sure that they have gained the trust of the, of the leader to the degree that the leader will listen to what they have to say in terms of insights. The leader and I need to have a good relationship and they need to understand that I, first and foremost, we are here to provide a service. I think of many of the groups that I end up running are like internal resources, right? And our customer is the company, right? Whether it's HR, finance, whatever, like the customer is the company. And so I want to make sure my customers are happy and engaged and they feel like they're getting what they need. At the same time, there are some people that don't know how to deal with data in a way that you need them to. And I need to be a guiding force to be like, I get it. You want to focus on X. This is maybe why we should focus on Y. And you have a wider picture of what others are asking too. So you can pull in pieces of data from other parts of the org to have a more comprehensive picture. It's like, yes, I heard your hypothesis, but I think we can broaden it or narrow it. So then you get actually to the answer you want. For sure. And sometimes that stuff is being covered elsewhere in the deck, for example. Part of that orchestration and part of that storytelling is the most critical part, I think, of, of, of that process. 
You said uh, analysts bring data back to HQ, and I, I like that analogy because it's kind of like you have this underlying bed of data that they can tap into, as well as the other data an- analysts they're working with. But um, in my simple mind, I tend to like bucket it into three chunks of data. You have like the production data from the product. You have the sales data of revenue-related stuff. And then you have the uh, people data, which is related to like headcount salary. I'm probably overgeneralizing it. How do you kind of bucket data in the org that people deal with? Well, I mean, I think it's close to what you said. The sales data, I think, is should be straightforward in many ways. I think the customer success data could be more nuanced because you're going to have to put in things like activity, engagement that are beyond just like the the customer churn or the the customer upsell. You also have to put information there about like, you know, multi-product usage and, and whatnot. So there's a bit more nuance there. The people data, as you said, I call it more like the finance data, if you will, because it's coming from like mostly FP&A. Again, that should be pretty straightforward. Like that's more like financial, you know, accounting, stuff, budgets, which are mostly coming from like spreadsheets. I think where it gets more nuanced is in product and engineering, Mm. because there you have to think about what it is that you're trying to present. Like if you're talking about engineering velocity, there's a couple of different data that you could use, right? To, to articulate engineering velocity. If you want to talk about product and product engagement, like for us, for example, at Envoy, we have a bunch of different products and the utility of those products is very different, right? We have a visitor's product with which we have to figure out who's visiting, how many visitors are happening, you know, what are they using, how many admins actually log into the admin portal as opposed to just visitors coming in. We have a desk product, which we got to figure out how many People are using desks. How many check-ins do we have on desks? And so it's it's more nuanced. And there, I think it takes a bit more of making sure that you're not like throwing a bunch of stuff on the table that people are going to get lost. How do you f- pull together a story and a thread of utility in your products? And I think that's more nuanced. And then marketing is more nuanced, right? Pick your CMO and they have their style, right? Every it's, CMO it's does first, kind of have a style with that, how they I work mean, their pipeline and everything. It's, it, and attribution, is it first touch? Is it last touch? Is it mixed? Um, how do you think about CAC per channel? Do you even care about CAC per channel? I think those are the ones that turn out to be a bit more tricky. One of the things I'll do, and here's a, a you know, pro tip, if you will, if, you, if you're willing to take it. What I do in my board deck is we have our sections. Yeah, you know, we start with what I what I call sort of like the the high level summary, and in there I have slides from basically everything. But that if if the board only has time to look at eight slides, like and they see these eight slides, they know exactly what's happening in my business. Like these are the key. Boom. And then you know we have a section for marketing, we have a section for for product, we have a section for sales, yada yada yada. But every quarter we add what I call the deep dive, which is a unique section. And this is going back to your point on how do you keep the data team engaged. The deep dive is something that we rotate because that is what we, looking at the data, what do we think is the most insightful thing that we need to go in deep on, right? And it changes by by design. Every quarter we wanna say, okay, what is the most critical thing that happened in our business? that we can actually go in and go in a couple of layers in and give a couple of different views. So was churn higher in mid-market last quarter? Well, why was that the case? Let's go in, right? Because you can't always do that. Otherwise, you're going to have an infinite amount of slides and presentation. You know, did we launch a new product, 
right? Like, okay, we're going to do a deep dive on the performance of that product, which we normally wouldn't do. And it's a way for me to keep the data team engaged because now they're like, okay, let's, let's, let's do cool stuff and let's go in on this. At the same time, for us to continue to elevate the fact that the mandate of that team is to surface insights, not just data. Anybody can surface data. Good team surface insights. The rotating spot is an excellent piece. Just hearing you think through how you structure your board deck, just, I mean, I'm a nerd about this stuff, is awesome because you have to train people that, hey, you're always going to get these bits and pieces to digest. I'm going to give it to you in the same structure and flow each time because I, I'm respectful that you have 20 other portfolio companies and I don't want you to have to relearn the wheel every time we come in. But then I also want to show you the capabilities of the team to go deep on something that I think is really insightful, depending on where we are in the product life cycle or the year. Changing gears a little bit, you've been a CFO in both good times and bad times, different macro environments, different challenges. I got to ask you about your time at Envoy during COVID. It seemed like the world was kind of ending at the time, maybe even more so within the sector that you play in. Uh, Were there any big oh shit moments like when COVID happened? Can you take me through what your mindset was and kind of flipping that switch to, I think I got to be, I don't know if you'd call it a wartime CFO, but something must have changed. Absolutely. So I joined Envoy right before the apocalypse. Yep. So I I joined in January and by March we were in shelter in place. And so I I joined the company that built products for offices right when everyone stopped going to offices, you know, in some cases by mandate of the government. And so I think initially, quite frankly, I didn't know if the company was even going to survive because, I mean, first of all, we all thought we were going to die <laughs> from COVID. I thought that the company just was was not going to survive. You know, as as is usually the case, I joined in a in a time when the company was doing really well and we were on track to go to raise a C round. But as you know, on track means, you know, you have but so much runway and you have to make sure that you get to that C round. When we went to shelter in place, we basically had had to get into like high gear because survival of the company now was at stake. It wasn't just like, can we weather this um, like many other companies? And so we did have to get into, I don't know if we want to call it wartime, but right away we started looking at everything. The first order of business for me was quite frankly, shoring up the balance sheet because yeah. You know, we had runway, but I needed to make sure that we extended this runway because we were not going to race a C round in this environment. And so we went out and we got um, venture debt that I thought was enough for us to be able to weather a storm. Unfortunately, like many other companies, we had to do a riff, which we had to execute pretty quickly. And then we did all of the other things that I think most companies did. You know, we, we, we got a PPP loan. We extended all of our lease payments. So we spoke to all of our landlords and we got some, some lease abatements. We deferred our social security payments with, with this government plan. And then we looked at every other expense and basically put a halt on it. That's not unique though. I think what we did was that was unique was that we brought the entire company into it because it was our company. Right. And we wanted to make sure that everyone was engaged. And and so we even created a Slack channel called Save Money Money, where we invited people that had ideas on how we can save money to put them in there. And then we would celebrate it. And it could be things like, hey, look, we don't need these three licenses for this. Or, hey, here's some other cost cutting that I found. And I was even giving out what I used to call the Scrappy Do Award. For people that did that, and I'm dating myself, most people don't even know who Scrappy Doo is, but 
Scrappy Doo was, uh, I think, the the nephew of Scooby Doo or something like that. Okay, which is a cartoon, and it's because we wanted to make sure that we were all being Scrappy. And so we really brought in the company, and I think that's what made it successful. Now, at the time, we thought COVID was going to be the end of the company. It turned out that COVID was probably the best thing to happen to the company, which is weird. But you know, when you're in the trenches, you don't really realize that. But we got to work pretty fast, and I needed to make sure back to that enablement. We needed to pivot like on a dime, and we did. And you know, we launched a new product, and then we we got back to growth. Thankfully, we raised you know 111 million dollar round in 2021, which I think definitely short short us up, and we, we did it at the right time. But yeah, it was definitely wartime, and honestly, wartime hasn't ended. I think that if you're if you're in a startup right now, efficiency is is key, and you have to make sure that you're measured because efficiency without growth is no good. Right? Yeah. You still need to make sure that you're finding growth, but we are thinking about things differently. It reminds me more of when I joined Etsy 2008, where like you didn't think about like fancy furniture. You just bought the cheapest thing in Ikea and you just brought it in. At Etsy, by the way, we never bought an Ikea. Everything was handmade, but you get my point. Yeah. And it was, it was super scrappy. No one was trying to like fly first class. And then I think that the last decade in many ways was, was not good for companies because it just embedded a lot of bad behavior that is in many ways expected you know, from folks. And so I do think that we're entering a new decade where, you know, mere mortal companies need to be more thoughtful. And I, and I, I'm not sure that we're out of war period. I got to commend you on the level of transparency and maturity that you treated all the employees with. We had spoke to Jim Cook, who was one of the co-founders of Netflix, first finance hire there and went on to become CFO of Mozilla Firefox. And he had this framework that he applied in bad times of saying, hey, here's what we know, here's what we don't know, and here's when we think we'll know. And he said that made people buy into the situation as it wasn't like an us versus them or like I'm operating at ambiguity. It was, they're treating me as an adult right now, telling me as much as they possibly do know, and we're all in this together now. Trust is key when you're asking people to make sacrifices, when you're asking people to believe in you, when you're asking people to believe that they should stick around when it's unknown. Trust is just key. So you've operated in good times, bad times. Reflecting back on it, what do you think are some of the qualities that separate a good CFO from a great CFO? I think EQ and again, enablement are, are the things that really separated. You know, for me, at least, one of my superpowers is the ability to understand human beings. Mm. And, you know, when you're asking people to do things, when you're asking people to believe, when you're asking people to make sacrifices, they need to trust the person that is sending that message in a big way. And I think that you need to be someone that they can look to and feel comfortable that you're giving it to them straight. I'm a New Yorker, so I don't, I don't pull punches. You have to be transparent. You have to be real. And people need to know that your ultimate intention is to move the company forward. And so I think EQ is, is the thing that is most critical because, again, as I said earlier, the numbers are a given. I mean, if you're not good at numbers, you should not have this job. Mm. <laughs> you know, like, like budgeting, like, right? And furthermore, there's so many tools now that allow you to do these things that before were like black magic that now... It's not that big of a lift, let's be honest. Really, you are an organizer of people. And in my case, I think about it like I'm there to partner with my CEO to move things forward. So I think the great CEOs have that EQ, have that ability to have folks rally around a cause 
and you know believe in the things that they are telling them. I, I like how you said you just got to be real. People have to perceive you as like not putting on airs, not trying to tell a story that's not there. And I think that gives you a lot of more credibility when you do have to say no, because they get where you're coming from. And if they feel that you, that you care about them, right? Yeah. The EQ part, the longer I go in my career, I notice that seems to separate the good from the great because you could be the most brilliant person on paper, but if you can't get people to do what you need them to do, it's, it's all for naught. Agreed. What we're going to do now is move into what we call our long ass lightning round. And the first <laughs> question I got for you is, uh, you got to be real with me. Okay. What's an example of something that you've screwed up on the job, either here or elsewhere in your career? Um, <laughs> so I, I mean, first of all, how much time do we have for this question? Go for it. I, I got I, I got a lot. No, but oh, kidding aside, I think the the thing that came to mind um, for me was I presented once to the company a quarterly update, and one of the slides literally had the previous quarter's graph for something, and I, I was literally going off, and then someone had to point it out to me, and I was just like, wow. Uh, now I'm very very careful in making sure that just because it might be a repeat slide, I'm looking really carefully. Uh, at the actual information on the slide, because that was um, that was that was not great. That was not a great. I've moment. been there before. That's that's a typical finance thing. You're so focused on the whole deck that you're like, oh, yep, that one looks right. I remember that one. Next one I got for you. If you could tell your younger self something, knowing what you know today, what would you tell them? Don't sell Bitcoin at eight hundred. <laughs> um, that, that 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 would be locking in. That would be that, that that would be my number one thing. Do not sell that Bitcoin at eight hundred. I know that it was at three hundred for a while, and eight hundred feels good. But yeah. hold on to it. Um, I I think again back to the EQ thing. I think understanding that your EQ is as important as your IQ. Uh, I think earlier on, I focused on making sure that people understood I was the smartest guy in the room. Yeah. And, you know, ultimately my relationship with my CEO is the most important factor to my success. And, you know, making sure that I partner well, making sure that I understand humans, particularly in startups. I think that all of startup founders and CEOs, they're like geniuses in one thing, but there are things that they don't know how to read in human beings. And, mm -hmm. and that's a superpower that you can come in and, and compliment. But that would be my thing. Like, like make sure that you're making the right relationships from the jump, from the start. Relationships will, will be key to your success and figuring out how you're the best partner possible, I think will move you up in your career even faster. I, I can totally relate to that. When I was on the come up early on, I mean, I would try to just blind people with science. I was like, number, number, boom, bang, boom. And then eventually I was like, they're not saying anything back. I must be doing great. It's like, no, dude, you didn't even like let them talk. You were just throwing numbers at them. Like read the room. Yeah. And and I think one more thing that, that and this was advice that I was given early on um, that's really helpful and I give it to a lot of people. And that is that, again, sometimes you don't realize the tone of how you're articulating things. And, you know, the passion in your argument will sometimes take away from the validity of the argument because Ooh, if people see you as too aggressive, as they see you as too punchy, they will start to zone you out and they will not listen. And you could be right. You can have the right argument. You can have, you can be spot on, but if you're not careful about the delivery of that, yeah. you know, you're not going to get the same result. It was someone who gets really passionate and energetic about something. I've had to pull myself back and be like, CJ, you're actually like probably coming across as aggressive here. And that's 
not what you want people to perceive you as. Exactly. All right, next one here. Roll the theme music, producer Nancy. And with that, it's time to rep yo stack, sponsored by Tropic, the next-gen procurement platform helping modern CFOs take control of their budgets and bottom line. By combining approval workflows, supplier management, and pricing benchmarks all in one place, Tropic makes savings opportunities easy to find and act on. Visit tropicapp.io to learn how. Can you walk me through your finance tooling stack today? What's uh, What tools are you working with? So I, I, I'd say our tools are pretty standard. Uh, if I break it down, we use build.com for our AP. We use Chargebee for our billing. We use Carta for our cap table. We use NetSuite for accounting and Stripe for payments. And then for FP&A, we use a, a tool called Aleph. It's a small company actually that, that just launched the product, but it's a way for us to do like forecasting and modeling in Excel and Google Sheets, which we prefer because every company runs their FP&A a little bit differently. And Aleph allows us to, to do that a bit more seamlessly. And we're, we're, really, we're really liking the product so far. We use Airbase for expense reimbursement. Nice. What was the most recent tool you bought? The most recent one that we bought was Aleph. Nice. I've heard so many good things about them in such a short period of time. And I got a chance to talk to uh, their marketing people and the finance people and the CEO, and they all seem to be building something cool. Last thing I got for you here. What's the craziest thing you've seen someone try to expense? Uh, first class round trip ticket to Japan was one in a company that we didn't even allow business. Did and, you have um, Did you have customers in Japan at least? <laughs> We did. We did. Okay. <laughs> we we did. We did have customers in Japan, but first class in Japan is very expensive. Very. I mean, it, it was almost like this. The it was almost the price of a of a car. Really? Um, like, are we talking like more I mean, than was, five grand, ten grand for this? Oh, it was almost ten grand. It was it was insane. Damn. Yeah, and the person then afterwards, what we did was we 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 cut it down the middle and we. We figured out what business would cost, yeah. um, and then we she reimbursed us the the remaining part of that, and then toothpaste, and not toothpaste at a hotel, but toothpaste in their house, you know, during COVID. That's that's a new one. We're adding that one to the list. I like that toothpaste. <laughs> cool. Hey, I gotta thank you so much for coming on the pod today. This has been personally extremely impactful with all the wisdom you've dropped and. Uh, I know everybody's going to appreciate your perspective. So thank you so much. No, it was, it, was, it was a fun time. It was great questions. Thank you for having me. Roll the credits, producer Nancy. The Run the Numbers podcast is part of the Turpentine Network of Podcasts. It is produced by Nancy Shu and edited by Justin Golden. Artwork made by some AI thing. Yelling an intro by Fat Joe. Don't forget to give us five stars. I really need this.